This is Our American Stories, and a popular men's magazine recently posed one of the most intriguing pop culture questions of all time. Who was cooler, Steve McQueen or James Dean? The magazine's nod went to McQueen. Guess that's why he's been crowned the king of cool. Steve McQueen was basically Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and Johnny Depp all rolled into one. In fact, Dear John's Channing Tatum and The Notebook's Ryan Gosling are currently battling it out to play the undeniably authentic McQueen in Hollywood's yet-to-be-shot biopic. But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries But what the McQueen movies, biographies, and documentaries never tell you is what happened when there was no script to read and the cameras stopped rolling. This is Steve McQueen's story. Steve McQueen was the coolest of cool, with searing performances in blockbusters like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, and Bullet, To his love for fast cars, beautiful women, and life on the edge, he was one of the hottest cultural icons of the 20th century. Steve McQueen was born on March 24, 1930, just five months after the Great Wall Street crash. Within months, his father abandoned both he and his 19-year-old alcoholic mother, Julian. His mother left Steve at her uncle Claude's farm. Julian remarried an angry and abusive alcoholic, returned for her then 12-year-old son, and moved to Los Angeles. The new stepfather began beating both of them. Steve would spend the rest of his life avoiding his mother and searching for his father. Here's Steve's friend, Hilly Elkins. It was that, that underpinning that made what he did so effective because there was a gentle and real core of sensitivity to the man. Uh, there was a little boy always in whatever he did. By the time Steve was 14, he'd become a tough street punk in Los Angeles and was arrested. When a traveling carnival passed through the town, Steve joined for a time, then returned to the streets where he was arrested again. On February 6, 1945, Steve was ordered to the Boys Republic in Chino, California, a reform school for juvenile boys with behavioral and emotional problems. During his 18-month stint at the Boys' Republic he adjusted to, and even thrived on, the structure and discipline. But Steve struggled with dyslexia. After the ninth grade, he dropped out of school. He emerged from the Boys' Republic with a steel-eyed coolness and detachment, inner rage and a rugged street cred. He was a character forged in his pain, but it would become an archetype that would define the modern movie star, many of whom he would never meet. Here's actor Mel Gibson from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. I had so many people I admired in films, and Steve was one of these guys. So I actually studied, you know, how he would move and, and the kinds of things he would do. And I think that he tended to be a kind of a guy who was out there and and disinhibited in some ways, almost to the point of criminality. There was something about him that was sort of delinquent. At 16 years of age, he became a deckhand on a boat when AWOL worked in a brothel in the Dominican Republic and was arrested for vagrancy and served 30 days on a southern chain gang. 
At 17, he joined the Marines and served as a tank driver and the mechanic. He saved five fellow Marines from a tank before it sank into the Arctic waters. On the other hand, he destroyed the engine of a tank trying to, quote, make it the fastest tank in the division. The Marines made a man out of me, McQueen later admitted. I learned how to get along with others, and I had a platform to jump off of. Here's McQueen biographer Marshall Terrell. So when Steve McQueen was discharged from the military, he was either going to go to Spain and, and learn how to tile set from the great masters, or he was going to become an actor. And the only reason why at the time he decided that he was going to become an actor was because acting had a lot of women. In 1950, at the age of 20, Steve headed to New York City and rented a flat in Greenwich Village. Here again is Marshall Terrell. Steve McQueen's first acting gig was uh, in the Yiddish theater. It turned out he was not a very powerful theater actor, and so he got fired, I think, after the first week. He was perfect for film because film would capture your subtleties. And then if somehow or another, he got into Lee Strasberg's uh, actor studio. So that, that shows you the raw talent that Steve McQueen had. Here's Steve McQueen. I know that when I was studying in New York, uh, I knew that I couldn't afford to fail because uh, it was the only thing that I knew how to do and, and that uh, I didn't know any other trade. Despite some modest success, McQueen was getting nowhere fast until he met a rising Broadway star everyone was talking about. Here's Steve's first wife, Neil Adams McQueen. I was a Broadway baby. You know, I was, my life was all about dancing. I had just come out of Carnegie Hall. I had been rehearsing for a show called Pajama Game. There he was with a dog, a big dog. He had a German Shepherd with him. And he said, hi, you're pretty. And I said, I didn't know what to say. I just saw those blue eyes, you know. And uh, I said, well, uh, you're pretty too. I don't know. I, I suppose it opposites attract, but I guess it was ever a thing of... Uh fall in love with a girl at first sight, I guess that was it, because, well, I sure had to chase her for a long time. He picked me up on his motorcycle one night, and that was it. Four months later, we were married. Neil would always say, well, this is what I see in you. If you give a little of that in your performance, then you will be recognized. And that's where you really see the first of the McQueen persona starting to emerge. McQueen had raw talent, but Neil's unstinting belief in her husband was one of the chief reasons he was finally able to open up and trust someone. So he took it to heart when she told her husband what she thought of his television appearances. I gotta let them do to stand on my two feet, Mr. Preston. They're shaving the hair off of my head and I know it, but my mother don't know it. Do you hear me? Here's Neil. Instinctively, I knew that what was showing through was not the man that I knew. I said, what I keep seeing is Brand or Dean, and it's just, you know, it doesn't work. And he realized that what I was talking about was right. So I said, smile a little bit. I know it's, it's a tough thing to do because you're playing a killer, but when you're talking to your mother or something, you've got to be able to show something of you. So he did, and for the first time, then he got fan mail, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's good. And he knew I was on his team. So true, and he was not Brando, and he was not James Dean. The king of cool, Steve McQueen, his life story, after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the original score from Bullet, a terrific movie starring Steve McQueen, one of the great car chases in history. And let's return to his life story and Greg Hengler's work. Jack Harris was about to shoot a horror film that was to become a cult classic. The Bob, starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Here's movie critic Ben Makowitz. Now, of course, the, the Blob, with its sequels and its cult status, uh, became a rather significant film historically. But, of course, one of the reasons why it's a significant film historically is because it stars Stephen McQueen. Without McQueen, I'm not sure the Blob takes on that stature. There was uh, a silver lining in the Blob for McQueen in that producer, Dick Powell, uh, actually requested a screener of the film. And, um, you know, he was impressed with McQueen's performance. And that led to Wanted Dead or Alive. On September 6th, 1958, McQueen began starring as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall. Bounty hunter, ain't you? That's right. Here again is Hilly Elkins. Josh Randall was a reactor. That was Steve's greatest talent. I mean, it was body language. It was the face. It was the raised eyebrow, the look across the camera. And the camera loved Steve. He started experimenting with a camera to see what worked and didn't work. And he was very, he was very studious about that. And this man with no uh, literary or artistic background had this incredible animal instinct about himself and about what worked for himself. He drove the directors and the producers nuts. He drove them crazy. If the script didn't work, he threw it out. The result was a killer series. Wanted Dead or Alive lasted three years, and director John Sturgis, who was filming his 1959 film Never So Few, starring Frank Sinatra, had taken notice of Steve McQueen. Sturgis thought McQueen's natural cockiness would be perfect for the part. Here's Hilly. And he was now in the movie business. The opportunity for a picture called Magnificent Seven came up, and the rest is history. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. The real star of that film supposedly was Yul Brynner, but Steve came off as the real star. Your gun has got you everything you have. Isn't that true? Yeah, sure, everything. After a while, you can call bartenders and faro dealers by their first name. Maybe 200 of them. Rented rooms you live in, 500. Home, none. Wife, none. Kids, none. Not because of his uh, act, his part in the uh, in the film, but just because of his presence. His presence was incredible, and that's when we really knew that he had a really big chance at making it. Here's actor Gary Oldman. You have two people on a screen, and you want to watch this person more than you want to watch that person. You just want to look at Steve McQueen. He walks onto the screen and he kidnaps you. Here's Steve McQueen's grandson, actor Stephen R. McQueen. Steve McQueen's characters all had very defining qualities. He was the guy that was tough, but without putting it in your face. He was the guy that you don't want to mess with, but you look up to him. And as an actor, yeah, those, those are the parts you want to play. And those are, that's who you want to be. You watch a movie and there's always that character that you want to be in. He found a way to always be that guy. 
the characters that you've played on the screen who have been loners, they've been um, rebellious a little bit, uh, moody. Um, have you interjected your own personality into these characters? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You are a loner? Yeah. Steve's daughter, Terry, was born in June 1959. Eighteen months later came a son, Chad, In 1962, director John Sturgis brought Steve a script for a movie called The Great Escape. Steve was not impressed and demanded rewrites for his character. Here's Steve. There's a great deal of compromise involved, you know, uh, in movies, I suppose. And I I get a bit uh, undone when people try to use me or... uh or there's compromises or injustice, and uh, I fly off the handle. McQueen said, I want you to assign a writer to me so that I can put my signatures on the film. McQueen gets the rewrites. His character gets enhanced significantly. And uh, oddly, the writer who comes in, Ivan Moffat, who'd been Oscar-nominated, he's responsible for so many of the things in the movie which we now associate with McQueen, which really are the things in the movie that we associate with the movie. In the cooler, with the baseball glove and the great sound. The The motorcycle chase wasn't even in the original film. And he would not have been a movie star had those things sort of not played out on screen. Now a cinematic rock star, the 33-year-old McQueen set his sights on Hollywood legend Edward G. Robinson. He came with the name Cincinnati. Here's legendary actor Carl Malden. Steve McQueen realized that he had a big challenge when he did Cincinnati Kid. Nancy, this is Eric Stoner, the Cincinnati Kid. Here's acclaimed director Norman Jewison. That scene where he just looks at him and you feel the tension right away. I can get the money. I know you can. Robbins, he used to say, I'm going to gut him. I'm going to gut him. Give us it. You're good, kid. But as long as I'm around, you're second best. You might as well learn to live with it. Here again is Gary Oldman. The art of it is to make it look effortless. Steve McQueen made acting look as easy as breathing. One calm evening while McQueen was getting some fresh air, he was approached by fellow actor Robert Vaughn. They had this big party, best in Hollywood, young people are there. I saw Steve out on the veranda looking out toward the ocean. I said to him, when you were back there in Greenwich Village with Neil on the back of your bike, did you ever think you'd wind up like this? There was a long pause and I, he said, what makes you think I'm going to wind up like this? It was a terrifying moment, and he didn't even look at me. He just set it out into the air. Something was hovering over him all the time that made him aware that this was transitory, this life that he was living. Here again is Norman Jewison. He had all these stories about his his childhood, and and he was he was a bad kid. I mean, he was a and he, because he was looking for a father. That's who, and I bring it all down to that. Steve was really looking for his father. McQueen was getting bombarded with scripts. One of them was a film called The Thomas Crown Affair, directed by Norman Jewison. 
McQueen wasn't interested in the role of a white-collar bank robber, but his wife, Neil, thought it was perfect for her husband and knew just how to spark his interest. One morning, we were having breakfast, and I said, gee, honey, that's too bad, you know, that uh, Norman doesn't want you for um, the crown caper because I think you could do it. And he was eating his French toast, and he sort of stopped. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Norman wants either Sean Connery or Rock Hudson for this part. I said, it's unfortunate, you know, because you could be, I think, really terrific in it. He said, you got to be kidding me. What do you mean he doesn't want me? I said, he doesn't. He doesn't want you. He's given the script to everybody in Hollywood but you. Here's Jewison. I said, you're not right for it, Steve. My God, this man wears a shirt and tie. He's a, he's a Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Dartmouth. He says, that's why I want to do it. But maybe that was it. Maybe that's why he did it, because I turned him down. <laughs> McQueen started his own production company and Bullet became the company's first release. It was 1968 and the idea of playing an unconventional detective appealed to Steve. So did something else. When anyone ever does a top 10 list of car chases on screen, it's always Bullet as number one. The interesting thing is that in the script, it just says really two words, and that is car chase. And in McQueen's head, he knew exactly what he's going to go for. Bullet was released in October 68. The reaction was absolutely through the roof, and the profits were just crazy. And Steve McQueen as Bullet just became an instant icon. This is truly where the Steve McQueen legend really takes off. He had the X Factor in big letters, the X Factor, sex appeal. Here's Steve's second wife, Allie McGraw. Every man I met wanted to be him. Every woman wanted to sleep with him. Every kid wanted to be mentored by him. He just had that extraordinary, charismatic, sort of sexual, but dangerous, but soft underneath, bright, street smart power. The X Factor indeed, and Allie McGraw hit it just right. When we come back, more on the life story of Steve McQueen, more on the life of Steve McQueen here on Our American Stories. American Stories, you're listening to Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen, and we return to Greg's story about the King of Cool. When it came to his children, the King of Cool had nothing but a warm heart. Here's daughter Terry, Neil, and son Chad. It was very important to him that my brother and I had a real sense of home. You know, we were able to go to him and talk to him, not just as a father, but as a friend. When the children were little, when they were first born, 
He really couldn't relate to them, you know. He just uh, sort of dismissed them until they were able to uh, become little persons. As soon as, as their personality started evolving, then Steve could relate to the little children. He instilled a lot of things in me and my sister that uh, he had learned. I think he, he used to say, uh, some to the effect that, that I mean, I, I've learned, so now it'll save you the bumps and the bruises. It was very important that we were not raised in the Hollywood, not to put down Beverly Hills, but the Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, you know, of children that had no values. We, um, we were raised with the values that I would hope I can manage to instill in my children. With success and money, Steve McQueen collected cars and motorcycles, and they all found a home in his garage. Car and motorcycle enthusiasts formed McQueen's inner circle of friends, admiring and respecting him not as a Hollywood figure, but as a man after their own macho hearts. Here's Chad. He dug hanging out with guys like that, you know? I mean, he's really, he was in his element. I think for him, doing movies was a battle. You know, it was a, he knew that he had to get his game face on. Motorcycles, he just blended in with the rest of the guys. One of the guys Steve McQueen dug hanging out with was Roger McGrath. And I dug hanging out with Roger too, although I know him as Dr. McGrath. You see, Roger is my former college professor in Southern California, who also happens to be one of the coolest guys I've ever met. So I gave him a call and asked the Pacific Palisades boy to tell me about the first time he met McQueen. He began by telling me about having just seen The Great Escape in the theater right before they met. And here is Steve McQueen, and of course, he was my favorite by far in there, and I think most American guys, because he was the quintessential American, you know, rebellious and defiant, and supremely uh, tough and talented, you know, with that just, you know, cocky... Uh, attitude and, and that certain hard edge to him, you know. And it's something I think we all, you know, deep down in our hearts thought was that was an American, you know, that was the way we should be. And he certainly captured that in The Great Escape. All right, uh, there I was up there on somebody's private road. It was 1964, I was 17, and a, a senior at Palisades, and uh, and I was uh, doing wheel stands, making a lot of noise on my match list over these speed bumps. And all of a sudden I hear this whoop, whoop. And I thought, oh, gee, that's nothing could sound like that except a V12 Ferrari, you know. And so I thought, oh, God, some uh, resident here. Uh, you know, this is all in a split second. I thought, well, yeah, I guess he has a right to be a a little upset maybe and uh, but then on the other hand I was I was 17 and of course full of it and so I thought uh, and then another and all of a sudden right next to me is a Ferrari 250 GT Berlinetta and I look over expecting to uh, see the driver looking over and giving me the one finger salute you know and then I thought, and then we'd, we'd pull over and, uh, you know, see what happens. And, and instead, I look over there, and it's Steve McQueen. You know, here's 
Mr. Great Escape. <laughs> and uh, he's looking over, and instead of the one finger salute, he's motioning. He's motioning like, follow me, follow me. And so I did. And uh, I followed him into the garage, into the garage, and he jumped out. He was he was dressed uh, you know, kind of casual, but but smooth. Maybe he'd been at a meeting in Hollywood. And he said, "Give me five minutes." And he uh, split into the house. And I sat there in the garage, looking at a couple triumphs of his. True to his word, five minutes later he comes out, and he's wearing Levi's, a T-shirt, and a sawed-off sweatshirt. And he grabs a pair of goggles off a peg on the wall, and he said, let's ride, let's ride. <laughs> so off we went, you know. Then in 1970, despite a broken foot from a motorcycle racing accident, McQueen would race the grueling 12 hours in Sebring, Florida. McQueen was neck and neck with Mario Andretti in the Ferrari 512S. With an average speed of 113 miles an hour, McQueen would challenge for the lead with his Porsche 908 Spider throughout the 12-hour marathon. In the end, Andretti won, crossing the finish line a mere 23 seconds ahead of the second place McQueen. And it must be noted that Andretti had a three-driver team while McQueen only had a two-man team. Then McQueen threw everything into his 1971 auto racing movie Le Mans. With more than 70,000 hours of racing footage, nobody knew what the film's storyline was, and it was a critical and box office failure. His production company collapsed. He lost his agent. His 15-year marriage to Neil ended. The IRS presented him with a $2 million tax bill, and the finger of blame for all of it was pointing directly at Steve McQueen. It was a long fall from the top, and McQueen hit every step on the way down. And the final crash and burn occurred one night with a guy named Charles Manson and his so-called family. Steve McQueen was, was invited to uh, the house of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And the only reason he didn't was because on his way there, he saw a young girl hitchhiking, picked her up, and off they went. But then when he found out the next morning what happened, completely uh, became unglued. We have a weird homicide. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. One officer summed up the murders when he said, in all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. His paranoia had gone through the roof. The ghastly murders convinced McQueen that the deranged hippies and so-called flower children were out to get him. It turned out that McQueen had cause to be spooked. During the Manson family trial, it was revealed that McQueen was on their kill list, along with Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Tom Jones. Now we all know that Jesus walked on water, but did you know that Chuck Norris can swim on land? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right. Steve McQueen was so macho that after Chuck saw him in the classic motorcycle documentary On Any Sunday, he had a wish. Here's Chuck Norris. 
I saw a movie call on any Sunday. I said, if there's any one actor I'd like to meet, that's the man I'd like to meet. And I'm in my karate school in Sherman Oaks, and I get a call, and my one of my instructors comes to me and says, uh, there's a call from Steve McQueen. I guess you're kidding. And so Steve became one of my private students and trained with me for uh, several years. I did my first film, and after I finished the film, I went and saw it, and I thought, and it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And Steve uh, came and saw it. And he said, well, it's not that bad of a film. But let me give you some advice. And when we come back, the last installment of the life of Steve McQueen, here on Our American Stories. Listening to the soundtrack from the Magnificent Seven. And when we last left off, Steve McQueen had just seen one of Chuck Norris's first movies and was about to give him some advice. Here's Chuck. He said, You are verbalizing things on the screen that we have already seen visually. And movies are visual, it's a visual thing. This is another thing. Let your character actors fill in the plot of the movie. And when there's something pertinent, very important to say, then you say it. He said, then the people will remember what you say. He said, that's what you've got to have in your movies. Memorable lines. The great comeback started with the 1972 film, The Getaway, which was the first of three big powerhouse films and performances for McQueen in the 70s. He followed that up with Papillon in 1973, and it was on the set of Papillon where legendary stuntman Stan Barrett, the former Golden Gloves champ, motocross racer, and black-belted Air Force veteran, had an unusual talk with his friend Steve McQueen. Here's Stan Barrett from the documentary Steve McQueen, American Icon. He said, have you seen JN around? And J.N. Roberts was the best desert racer at the time. He said, well, what do you think? He said, he's really pretty far out there, this religion thing with him. I said, look, Steve, he's off the drugs. He's not doing this and that. I said, he's pretty excited about it. And Steve said, well, you know, I'm I'm religious too. I've gone to church. And I said, Steve, because you go in and out of a barn don't mean you're a cow. Normally that would have zapped somebody else uh, and might have been a put down, but, but Steve wanted to listen a little bit more. Stan basically asked, you know, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's the key. I told Steve, I think, my story and, uh, you know, how I came to Christ and how to change my life. And he was not offended. He was inquisitive and listened to what I had to say. So, so Stan left McQueen two books, including Mere Christianity. You know, I said, Steve, this ain't no rehearsal, man. You know, you're not getting out of here alive. And I said, you know, you'd better think about it. In 1977, McQueen not only left his second wife, Allie McGraw, but he also left Hollywood, something no Hollywood star had done before. 
When the offers kept coming, McQueen ripped the mailbox from its post and tossed it into the ocean and told his agent to charge $50,000 just to read a script. Here again is Steve's son, Chad. I think when you get to some sort of stardom like that, you would you say, well, is this all there is to it? I mean, I thought there was more out of life, and I think he was searching for that. At 47, McQueen decided to start a whole new life. At 23, Barbara Minty was the perfect partner. It was almost inevitable, but Steve got interested in airplanes. After moving 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles to Santa Paula, Steve was looking for a flying instructor at the local airport. So he was given the name of Sammy Mason, who um, was a stunt pilot uh, and a test pilot for Lockheed and a very, very, very well-respected man. Here's McQueen's widow, Barbara Minty. I've never seen him really respect somebody so much. Really? I mean, Sammy was everything in his eyes. Steve saw in my dad something, you know, that I just took for granted. You had to respect him. He didn't demand it, but you just wanted to give it to him. Mm -hmm. He recognized in him a, a spirit of confidence, a spirit of peace. And it's hard to describe, but when you're around him, you, you, know, you just really felt comfortable. He had been looking for father figures all of his life, and, and he definitely found one in Sammy. He was his mentor, um, his hero, his... Yeah his everything. They just became solid, solid friends and um, they had a family life that I'm pretty sure that Steve had never experienced and they, they just accepted him, took him into their hearts, took him into their home and um, Sammy was so solid spiritually. Yeah. He wasn't a preacher, yeah. he lived it. And finally one day he basically said, what is it about you that's different? I can't quite put my finger on it. And Sammy said, well, Steve, I'm a boarding in Christian. He came home one day and he says, Honey, put a dress on. We're going to church. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It came completely, completely out of the blue. It wasn't Sammy asking Steve to come to church. It was Steve asking Sammy if he could come to church with him. My dad told me, he says, you know, Steve asked if he could go to church with me. So I, I thought, well, that's, that'll be a one-time thing. You know, Steve and his wife, Barbara, uh, went to church with Sammy and his wife, Wanda, uh, faithfully every week up in the balcony of the, of the uh, Ventura Missionary Church. Here's then-pastor of Ventura Missionary Church, Leonard DeWitt. After church, I was standing out in the foyer greeting people and uh, felt somebody tap me on the shoulder. And I turned around and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'm Steve McQueen. And I said, hi, Steve. He, he just had a bunch of things he wanted to know uh, about the Christian life. What about the Bible? And yeah. can you really rely on it? And yeah. so forth. His questions were really good. And so after two hours, he sat back and he said, well, that's all of my questions. And I said, Steve, I have one. And he, he grinned. He said, you want to know if I'm born again, don't you? And I said, that's really what's important to me. And so then he said, you remember the Sunday that you invited people who wanted to receive Christ? When you gave that invitation, he said, that's when I accepted Christ. It sort of all clicked that if I could be forgiven, I can start all over again, and, and I can have that inner peace that I wanted for so many decades. Going to church and, and 
Sammy, I think, helped him a lot. I mean, his whole life just changed. The King of Cool was now doing one of the most rebellious things he had ever done in his life. But about six months after becoming a Christian, several friends began noticing McQueen's unhealthy appearance. Here's what Roger McGrath saw while spending time with Steve at the Santa Paula airport. And then one day I came home and I remember I I told my wife that Steve kind of let himself go. I think I used the term, oh, he's looking kind of rasty, you know. Um, And then I was out there a couple weeks later hanging out with him. His abdomen was kind of protruding a bit. And Steve was always a very lean guy without an ounce of extra anything on him. Probably a little bit under five uh, ten and uh, probably didn't weigh more than 150 and so it looked like something was kind of pushing out against his t-shirt and he kind of uh, looked and it can help me noticing and he, he said I uh, said I've been trying to keep it quiet it's uh, it's the big C you know it's cancer here's Allie and Barbara 50 years old it was way too early for this story to happen and yet He'd been exposed to asbestos, which is, I gather, what was the specific root of that cancer. He was in the Marines, and he was cleaning up the... um, Of course, he went and chased some girl, and he got in trouble. And they made him clean out the hulls of these ships, and they had asbestos. That's where he breathed in the asbestos, and asbestos takes... Mesothelioma takes probably, usually 20-some years to get into your body and get going. Here's Steve's close friend and racing buddy... Buddy Eakins. He got very, very close with people, like he was trying to make amends for uh, his past life and, and trying to make up for everything uh, to clear his way, you know, to God. Steve also made a phone call to his wife, Neil, for the many indiscretions he committed during their marriage. On November 3rd, 1980, As McQueen's visit with the Reverend Billy Graham was wrapping up, Steve turned to his new friend and called out, I'll see you in heaven. Four days later, Steve McQueen was dead. Right then, right here, the King of Cool made the ultimate great escape to his forever home with his forever father, the King of Kings. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's a heck of a story. And I think I know a lot about acting and actors, but my goodness, Greg, great job on that. And, you know, you heard that great line from The Son, and The Son had said that, you know, the guy, the guy who he loved, his father, had experienced this stardom, but that there had to be more in life. There had to be something more than scripts and fame. And by the way, we, we hit that so many times. And unlike so many other stars who end up killing themselves, McQueen did something different. He went and searched for some kind of deeper meaning in his life. And he sought out other sources of meaning and other friendships. And you won't hear this kind of story anywhere else, but here on Our American Stories, we pull no punches. We take the stories where they go. And this one ended beautifully. Steve McQueen's life story here on Our American Stories. And you can hear all that we do. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we go out as we started this segment 
with the sound from the Magnificent Seven. And watch Steve McQueen's acting, particularly in the Thomas Crown Affair. It may be as good a piece of acting as you've ever seen, and the same with Sand Pebbles. Steve McQueen's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. The arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show, and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories, because our men and women are out there every day, and always have been, all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavides himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant, Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. 
Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude. For service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. 
You're going to love them. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who is the man behind the legend? Here's Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, by nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs there, shine shoes, sold papers, pick cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn the skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learn the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. So I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia, but the Dern recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. Well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so, after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know it as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learn oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross transatlantic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, 
And I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. <laughs> Feeling danke, danke schön. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg. And Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese Infantry Unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Cloca Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement, but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall, using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there, like Elijah, the Indian, I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there to burn the flag and what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined. Because I remember when I was taught in jump school, that old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words, never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometimes. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry, even if you can stand up you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching, I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five and ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. <laughs> so, I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up. The latter part of April, 
I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligent information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and the legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisted and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter, he was riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow men and country. I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his friend. And so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again. I was in another staging area waiting for our next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. Come in and get us out quick ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in to land and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, My God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, Who are the people on the ground? He said, Hey, he said, it's that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for Top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter. We got on with the forward air controller to guide us in. He said, you can't go in there. You can't go in. It's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in the hell. And when we come back, more from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. His story, here on Our American Stories.
And we just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio. So he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice. As he says, he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly, wounded, and secure classified documents. Here again, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of Howard and the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area, and it started unloading started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, he was on a helicopter. So they they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh, my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eye, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do for him. Oh, my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I'll find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. <laughs> So the doctor says, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much. That's the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So we landed in the hospital at at, uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, 
I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa. And that airplane that I was flying in, Matavak, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> So after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion. And I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career. Then I was awarded with a medal. And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story, as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavides. Boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder 
and I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country. And they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story, the Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American, and what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works, and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine. 
but his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt fate again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought. And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work now, fish, he thought. I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair-weather breeze, and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea, and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down, and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. 
He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head. Last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled partway over and then righted himself and swam away. Fish, the old man said. Fish, you're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. On the next turn, he nearly had him. But again, the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man. Or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head, he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know... The old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know. But I will try it once more. He tried it once more and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised although his hands were mushy now, and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again, and it was the same. So he thought, and he felt himself going before he started, I will try it once again. He took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple, and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it and lifted the harpoon as high as he could and drove it down with all his strength and more strength he had just summoned into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in and he leaned on it and drove it further and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick, and he could not see well. But he cleared the harpoon line 
and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. Then it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head on his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man, but I have killed this fish, which is my brother. And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. Thank you.